All right, well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5? Well, if a meteor doesn't hit, we should finish chapter 5. May, may take a couple hours. We'll get there. All right, as we said uh, last week, before we veered off into another subject, kind of, um, as we come to the fifth and final chapter in Peter's first epistle, it contains a mixture of greetings and exhortations. So we read in verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort. The word elders is the Greek word presbyteros, and uh, it not only referred to an older man in the community, but often to an older man who was a leader in the community. We see this in both the Old and New Testaments, that uh, the elders in a city or town, these were what the um, Old Testament called the hoary heads, the silver-haired guys. Uh, the, the hoary means silver. So, uh, and, and they were the ones that had lived long on the earth and had gained wisdom. And so they were chosen uh, to oversee the affairs of city government as aldermen and judges. These would sit in the city gates, as it was referred to in the Bible, but it would be uh, right by the main gate as you came into the city. Uh, these city uh, fathers, the elders, would have a place where they would sit, probably sometimes during the year would be outside, sometimes inside, but it was their city hall. So when you entered into the city through the main gates, you had the city fathers, and uh, you would bring your disputes, any kind of civil matters, uh, cases and so on, and they would also gather and make uh, decisions that affected the entire city. And so uh, this was this, uh, the way that uh, the Bible talks about elders from a kind of a civil standpoint, but this was also true with regard to the early church where elder Christian men were appointed by Paul and the other apostles to uh, oversee churches that they had planted, which allowed the apostles to then move on and uh, preach the gospel in different areas and plant other churches. The apostles had a more of an itinerant ministry. They traveled around and preached the gospel and uh, uh, visited, no doubt, established churches, but they were kind of missionaries, what we would kind of describe as missionaries, um, and they would stay long enough where elders could be raised up. And uh, these men then would take over the, uh, the church, and um, the apostles would move on. Now, uh, these elders were the spiritual leaders and overseers of the local church, pastors, shepherds. And so Peter now turns his attention to address and exhort these church leaders. So he says again, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. As we said last week, Peter viewed himself not as the Pope, <laughs> but simply as one of the men God had appointed to look after his flock. A fellow elder, a shepherd, is what he called himself. The word witness is martis in the Greek, where we get our word martyr from. And a witness, of course, is someone who sees an event take place and then, you know, testifies to others of what they saw. We think of a, a witness uh, primarily in, in, a, in a court case where a person maybe witnessed a crime or an accident of some kind. And so they're called into court to give testimony. Uh, tell us what you saw. You were a witness to this uh, crime. Tell us what you saw. And uh, we see it often used in that regard. But um, in New Testament times, when a Christian gave testimony to having seen the risen Christ, or later to simply believing in Christ, they were often put to death. This happened so often that eventually the word martis, witness, became synonymous with a Christian being killed for their testimony, in other words, their faith, they became a martyr. That's where the word came from. When Peter said he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, commentators are not really sure what he was referring to. Now, some have even gone as far as to say that when Peter denied the Lord three times at the house of Caiaphas, the morning of the crucifixion, he went out and wept bitterly. We know that. But some believe after he pulled himself together, he wanted to see what was going to happen to Christ. And so he knew where the Romans crucified, you know, on top of Golgotha. 
So he, many believe he kind of snuck there, incognito, kind of kept off to himself. He was ashamed that he had denied the Lord three times after he made that bold uh, declaration, even though these other disciples deny you, I will never deny you. And then he goes and denies the Lord three times. So uh, it could be that he did uh, sneak uh, back uh, and saw uh, Jesus uh, having, of course, been beaten and tortured. Uh, Isaiah tells us uh, more graphically than the New Testament that they pulled his beard out with their hands. They beat him so badly he was no longer recognizable as a man. And so Peter sees the Lord hanging on the cross. What a sight that must have been. So I saw the sufferings of Christ. Then he goes on to say that he was also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, I think most commentators believe this is a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John went with Jesus up to this mount, Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet up. They didn't have to go all the way to the top, but, you know, they went up onto a high mount, it says, okay? And there the Lord was transfigured. Now, let me just stop and say this. Jesus was transfigured, and what happened was the glory that was his as God, veiled by humanity, well, if I could put it this way, he kind of turned inside out in a sense. The glory that was his as God, the second coming glory that we're all going to see him when he comes with. Um, that's the glory Peter, James, and John got a little preview of that coming glory. We, we read in Matthew 17 uh, about this incident. And uh, they went up to the mountain, and, and Jesus was transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphosis, okay? He was metamorphized, like when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And uh, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, again, this was a little preview of his second coming glory. And uh, we read in Matthew 24, you don't have to turn there, uh, when Jesus is talking about uh, the time as the tribulation period is coming now to an end. And uh, it says in verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He said earlier, as lightning flashes across a dark sky from east to west, so shall my coming be. I'm going to light the sky up. I would imagine it's going to be a dark sky. Well, how brilliant will that be? When the Lord Jesus breaks through the darkness and his, the light of his glory shines on the entire earth, every eye will see him. And uh, he will then set up his kingdom. But uh, Peter mentions the suffering and glory of Christ to these elders, I believe because he knew that they were at that moment or would in the near future be experiencing suffering for their faith. And I think he wanted them to remember that their suffering, that their sufferings for being a witness for Christ would be short-lived. Paul said these light afflictions, which are but for a moment. When you compare them to eternity, okay? But Peter, wanting to encourage them, no doubt. These guys, especially the elders, were going through difficult times, a lot of persecution at this point, and um, a lot of people were discouraged. And uh, maybe a lot of elders uh, maybe had quit. Uh, we just talked in prayer this evening before we came out here and i read the article too a pastor in california committed suicide today uh, had a young wife and a couple of young two or three young children and um, he did have some uh, i think some depression issues but even so ministry can be hard strike the shepherd and what the sheep will scatter so the devil's got pastors and elders in the crosshairs please pray for your pastors and our families uh, as we pray for you, because if the devil can take the shepherd out, the sheep will scatter. And so it's not easy, and Peter wanted to encourage these men, look, yes, it's tough. You're going through difficult times right now, persecutions and so on. But in the light of eternity, it's momentary. It's momentary. And will give way to eternal glory and inexpressible joy. It's interesting, he is ending his epistle with this exhortation just like he began his epistle with a similar exhortation turn back to chapter one starting at verse three peter said blessed be thy starting his epistle with this 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance in heaven now, incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He's talking about the rapture now, where we are completely saved. We're saved uh, inwardly, but our body isn't redeemed yet, Romans 8. This body is going to die if Jesus doesn't come for us in the rapture. It's going to go back to the dust of the earth. Uh, when the rapture finally happens, this body will be glorified, and then we will be fully redeemed. That's what we're looking for, okay? And that's what Peter's uh, talking about, salvation. Not salvation from hell, but salvation from the struggles that we're facing in this life. A lot of it are physical struggles and things, uh, because uh, this body wears out. Oh, I know that. And um, but uh, who are you know uh, we're we're waiting for this this inheritance incorruptible undefiled doesn't never fades away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So hang in there. Keep your eyes on things above, as Paul admonished us, right? Not on things on the earth. Keep your eyes on the unseen, Paul said, not on the seen. The unseen is eternal. The seen is temporary. What we see right now, that's temporary. Keep your eyes on what God has promised, which right now is unseen. Someday he will make it seen for us. Well, verse 2, Peter goes on, shepherd the flock of God. And he's talking now to the, the pastors, of course. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. The word shepherd actually comes from the Greek word poimen, which is the word we get our word pastor from. In both the Old and New Testaments, the people of God are likened to sheep. It's a fitting description, seeing as sheep are helpless and prone to wander. And I put myself in that category, so I'm not just singling you guys out, okay? Uh, which is why sheep need a shepherd. Uh, they have no natural defense mechanisms. Um, they're dumb, okay? I mean, if one sheep is thirsty and walks over to a fast-moving uh, river and, and, and walks in a little bit to get a drink, the river will sweep the little thing down the river, and the other ones are too stupid to go, oh, we better not go in there, because look at Charlie. He's been washed. I mean, whoa. You know, and it's, no, let's all go. You know, and so one by one, they're getting washed. And so the shepherd has to keep an eye on these poor little creatures, okay? Because they're so, they're so uh, you know, dumb, uh, you know, and so on, and uh, not tough at all. I was coming out of a uh, a Christian wedding reception that I had done the uh, a couple's wedding. And uh, I know it was Saturday night. I had to leave a little early because I get home and I get to bed early because I'm up early on Sunday morning. So I'm walking through the parking lot, you know, and I'm looking at, you know, just at the car, looking for my car. And I noticed one of the cars, these are all Christians, right? I noticed one of the cars had a, a vanity license plate that said Lambo on it. <laughs> and I thought, you wish. You wish. You might think you're Lambo. You're Bozo, maybe. Not Lambo. There's no Lambo, okay? There's no tough sheep. You know, come on, Satan, bring it on. No, I mean, Christians who think that way and, and, and all, they, they get wiped out all the time, okay? I want to hide behind the shepherd. When the devil knocks on the door, I'm going to send Jesus to answer it, okay? Because he's the one who, who protects me, all right? But the responsibility of the shepherd back then was to lead the flock, feed the flock. And, you know, watch over the flock just like a shepherd or pastor of God's flock. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts 20, as Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, he spent uh, three years in Ephesus, longer than any other place he ministered. And uh, he knew these folks well. He loved them dearly. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and everywhere he went, prophets were telling him, you're going to be uh, put in prison. Uh, he didn't know if that meant he was going to be executed, so he didn't know if he'd ever see these uh, dear elders uh, ever again. So when they, uh, the ship stopped at a port about 25 miles away from Ephesus, Paul sent some of his guys to the city, asked the elders to come and meet with him. And you re remember in Acts 20, he gives them uh, what he thinks is a final farewell discourse, teaching, okay? 
and he exhorts them and so on. But one of the things he does, he tells them, look, you are God's shepherds. Here's what you need to do. A good shepherd leads and feeds God's flock. He also watches and warns God's flock. In other words, he leads the flock by example. We're going to talk about that in a second. He feeds the flock faithfully on God's word. We'll also talk about that in a second. He watches out for the wolves, the false teaching. And he warns the flock when he sees those things coming. A lot of churches don't do that, and we also will talk about that. But, but you remember also, the exhortation that Peter is giving here, guys, is really the same exhortation that Jesus gave to Peter personally, face to face. You remember, we've talked about this thing last week. I'm not going to go into the whole thing again. But you remember how that um, after Jesus rose from the dead, the first person he went to see was Peter. We're not told that in the Gospels. We don't see it happen, but later on it's mentioned. Uh, he went and saw Peter and uh, probably told him, Peter, I love you, Don't you know, it's, it's okay. But a little while after that, he told his guys to go up to Galilee where he would eventually come to see them. Well, they went up there and waited a while, and Peter got restless. He said, I'm going fishing. You know, he's a fisherman. And so they went fishing. But they said, we'll go with you. All the guys went. And they fished all night, caught nothing. As the sun was beginning to rise, they saw a stranger on the bluff uh, what looked like a stranger, and he, he said, Children, have you caught any fish? Uh, no, nothing. Well, cast your net on the other side. They did, and suddenly the net was so full of fish it was almost breaking. Well, that was how Jesus basically called these men. Remember after he had preached, the crowd was so enormous, it was pressing in on him. He was right by the water, and uh, he asked Peter if he could uh, sit in his boat to teach because Peter had come in uh, from fishing all night. And Peter said, uh, yeah, okay, and so Jesus taught. Then the Lord said, okay, uh, launch out into the deep for a, uh, and drop your nets for a catch. Now, Peter's a fisherman. He says, well, Lord, first of all, you don't fish in the daytime. I'm a fisherman. I know how to do this. What he didn't know was the one who created the fish was telling him to do this, all right? You don't fish in the night, daytime, fish at nighttime, you know, and you don't go out into the deep like that, you know, in the daytime. But he said, okay, at your request, I will let down the net, the Lord said, nets. He said, well, okay, I'll give you a little obedience. Caught so many fish, the, the boat was getting to sink. And um, Peter said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So that's kind of how Jesus introduced these guys to himself. And now at the end, cast your net on the other side, immediately it's filled with fish. John looks at Peter and goes, uh-oh, it's the Lord, Peter. Peter jumps into the water, swims to shore. You remember this scene. Jesus had already got a fire going, some fish on there, and so on. And um, Peter had denied the Lord three times publicly. Public sins have to be dealt with publicly, okay? Private sins, you deal with privately in your own heart, all right? But you remember the scene. And so um, in John 21, after they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again, the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, there's a little thing going on here in the Greek with the word love. You can get the CD from last or go online. Listen, last week we, we talked about that, okay? Two out of the three times, Jesus said, Feed, right? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, pasture my sheep, which is the overall care. I don't understand a shepherd who doesn't feed his flock healthy, nutritious, spiritual food from God's word, but instead feeds his sheep all kinds of spiritual, worldly junk food. What do I mean? I'm talking about pop psychology. I'm talking about churches. That's all they talk about and preach is social justice and global warming and, and so on and so forth. Uh, then you have the churches that are more mystical in their approach to things. 
and they're uh, conducting yoga classes, and they're doing contemplative prayer, also called spiritual formation, where uh, they will repeat a word, like a mantra word, but it's, you can, we only use biblical words, which is okay then. Yeah, so they Abba, 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 over and over again, or something else like that, until they enter into a state of, uh, altered state of consciousness called the silence, and now they can really connect with God. Trouble is, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. Uh, but it is talked about you know, all the way back into the occult. It's the basis for mantra meditation of the Hindus and so on. It, it's just amazing to me, and it just speaks to me, that so many leaders in the church don't have a high view of Scripture. They, they may give it lip service. They certainly don't believe it has the power to change lives. And that's why they preach all this other stuff and uh, give their people all these other teachings. I'm also amazed at pastors who are so undiscerning, and that's just a euphemism for ignorant and stupid, that they actually open their doors and turn their pulpits over to wolves masquerading as men of God, who then teach these abominations, word of faith, and other things from the pulpit, misleading God's people away from his truth. That's amazing, but... Paul did say, I mean, let's, I've said it before, I'll say it again, if there wasn't a market for false teachers, uh, they wouldn't have a ministry. As Paul said in the last days, people in the church would not want to hear sound doctrine any longer, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. We're seeing it today. So Peter says in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly so the first exhortation that peter gives to the elders in the church is that they are to conduct their ministries to god's people listen willingly and not by compulsion of course the word compulsion means forced intimidated into pressured into um, that's not how god wants his shepherds to shepherd his people in other words guys serving god in ministry especially pastoral ministry is a great blessing, a high calling, and an incredible privilege, and that must be the mindset with which pastors approach their ministries. They're not doing God a favor, okay? In fact, in the Church of Jesus Christ today, because we have gotten away from servanthood a lot, you see in a lot of churches where, where Christians volunteer, I hate that word, volunteer to minister in places, you know, small group or nursery or Sunday school, whatever. And they kind of have the attitude, many of them, that they're doing the pastor a favor. No, you're not. First of all, I don't want to... Here's my feeling. <laughs> you're not doing us a favor. We're kind of doing you a favor, okay? Because we're allowing you to use the gifts God has given you. And if you don't use the gifts God has given you, you're not going to get plugged into the body of Christ. You're not going to benefit. The fruit of the Spirit will not grow through you because it all comes as you're connected to the body, all right, the local church. I mean, I, I'm not talking about you guys uh, in particular. I mean, we have a lot of people that serve. We could use some help in some ministries. See me afterward if you want to help out. But uh, I'm just saying that we have a lot of wonderful servants in our church, but this church is, is unique in a lot of ways. I just had somebody who's come to our church for many years say to me, you know, I've, I go to a lot of churches visiting. I'm involved in a, a ministry, and I, I go there, and I, I network with a lot of people. I've been to a lot of churches. He says, this church is unique. He said, you know, I, I don't know of any other church that has a five-day fast in prayer every uh, twice a, a year. I'm, I'm sure they're out there. Uh, I, I don't know of any other church, he said, where uh, you emphasize uh, teaching the word uh, verse by verse, and you don't care what steps on toes or, you know, you're not worried about pleasing men. Um, I, I don't know of a church that gets involved in ministries like Destiny Rescue, rescuing young children from sex trafficking and so on. I mean, they're out there. He, but he was just listing four or five things. Said, you know, this, this makes this church unique in a lot of ways. Now, that's all the Lord. That's all the Lord. But I, I just throw that out there so you understand that, look, it's a privilege serving God, a privilege. 
especially as a pastor. Any pastor who feels he's being put upon, uh, he's being uh, you know burdened by, please then get out of the ministry. You're not blessing the sheep, and you're certainly not being blessed by God with that attitude and so on. One pastor said with regard to this, and I quote, the obvious point is that the shepherd must be diligent rather than lazy, uh, heart-motivated rather than forced to be faithful, and passionate about his privileged duty rather than indifferent. When the heart is fully Christ's and driven by love for him and for souls, well, there is much internal compulsion that precludes any need for external motivational pressure, end quote. Now, the exhortation that Paul uh, gave in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, with regard to giving God our money, guys, also applies to giving God our service. You all know it. Paul said, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whether you're talking about giving God money or giving God your time, your service, the same applies. God loves a cheerful giver. If you can't do it or give it cheerfully, don't do it or give it at all. This reminds us of what Paul told the Ephesian elders regarding his ministry to their churches. Acts 20, once again, kind of bouncing back and forth from Acts. But Peter, you know, what he said here, you know, don't serve by compulsion, but do it joyfully, basically, uh, is very much how Paul conducted his ministry. And he reminds the Ephesian elders uh, of how he ministered to them in their churches when he was with them. Acts 20, verse 33 He said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, we don't have many Paul the Apostles today in the sense that we don't have many in ministry, pastoral leadership ministry, that feel like this. Oh, there's, there's a good number, but not when you compare to the whole of Christendom in America. In fact, the church is rife, rife with phonies, con men, hucksters, rip-off artists masquerading as good shepherds, but whose only interest in the flock of God is to fleece them. Peter talked about them. It says we're going to study Second Peter starting next week. I won't belabor this, but Second Peter 2, 3, he said you can always tell a false prophet a false you know a ripoff artist in their greed they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money you can also read at your leisure ezekiel 34 where god talks about the false shepherds of israel these were the spiritual leaders who didn't care about the flock who only used the sheep to satisfy their desires you uh, use the wool for clothes and you you know just he goes on and talk about how these false shepherds, the sheep were all about serving them, not them serving the sheep. And uh, we see this many places today, this kind of celebrity pastor mentality. Uh, some of these guys really think they are celebrities, you know. And uh, I've heard stories where they, the nationally known uh, speaker, evangelist, pastor, whoever, you know, whatever, uh, and, you know, maybe a, a certain group, Christian group, wants them to come out and address their conference, okay? And so, you know, they, they have a stipulation. Often they will send a packet out with all the stipulations and what they require. And, you know, it's a, uh, they require a first-class airplane for themselves uh, and then, uh, you know, business class with the two or three guys they want to bring with them. Uh, they, uh, they demand that, um, uh, that they stay at five-star hotels, one of the stipulations is, uh, uh, you know, that um, uh, they uh, are paid upwards. I think of some of these guys, ten to fifteen thousand uh, dollars. That's a, you have to guarantee that uh, before they will come out and bless you with their ministry, quote unquote. Um, it's amazing. I will say this: it's not only the phonies, and a lot of these guys are just flat out phonies. They're false Christians, okay. Um, and they've learned that they can make a lot of money off the people of God. 
who are often very trusting, sometimes gullible. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. There are some people that, you know, these guys have continually shown their true colors, but people still flock to their ministries and support them. So that's always been a problem in the church. But sometimes those involved in ripping God's people off are God's people. Um, There are Christians who have not really died to self with regard to uh, making money off of the people of God, and they take advantage. Uh, There's a very dear pastor that I know. He's a wonderful man of God, has been used by God greatly all over the world, and uh, has uh, had a church, he's retired, semi-retired, of 10 to 15,000 people, and uh, God opened the door for them to get into radio, much like us. And uh, God gave to them all kinds of radio licenses where you have to build stations then, okay? And so he turned to somebody he knew in the church who did that kind of a thing. And this guy charged them three to four times what it should have cost to build these stations. Almost bankrupted the church. This pastor, good man, good heart, felt so bad about this because he felt it was his fault that he stopped taking his salary, sold his house and gave the money to the church to pay some of the stuff, and for a while was delivering pizzas at night until another Calvary pastor heard about it and they began to kind of support this man until he could get back on his feet in his church. I think they were paying $45,000 to build each station. Calvary Radio, we built it for 12. That's how much they were getting ripped off. He didn't know. He, he trusted this guy. Well, this man will stand before God who ripped off. This, you're ripping off God, okay? You really want to rip off the Lord? That's his money. That he, through the people of God, they've given to the church for the work of God. You really want to go there? Well, you're going to stand before him. You can tell him your reasoning. Well, the third exhortation Peter gives the pastors in verse 3 is, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There is a movement that was really popular 30 to 40 years ago, still going on today to some degree, called the shepherding movement. And this is where shepherds uh, taught that they had full, you were to be under their authority. Well, the Bible says that you guys are under the authority of the leaders, right? But that doesn't mean absolute authority. Those involved in the shepherding movement taught that everyone in these churches were completely under the control of the shepherds, the pastors. So much so that you couldn't sell your house. You couldn't uh, marry somebody. I mean, you had to get permission for everything from the pastors because they were the shepherd and you had to obey them in everything. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that as pastors we are, listen, not to put ourselves in the position of lords over God's people. Look, I am not your Lord, nor do I want to be your Lord. Sometimes Christians try to make the pastor their Lord by giving him an inordinate amount of control over their lives. They think that that is honoring the pastor No, you honor the Lord Jesus by giving him total control. But um, you don't ever give any man that much control over you where he dictates what happens in your family, in your marriage, who you can marry, when you should divorce, uh, where you should live, what job you should take. Good Lord, that's not only wrong, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. That's the makings of cults. Look, my role as your pastor is not to control your life. It's to help lead your life. And only then, only then, by my example, as someone who is following the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, personally, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I only want to help you to walk with the Lord because I'm walking with the Lord. And Paul affirmed this again back in, you have to turn there, Acts 20, when he first started to address the Ephesian elders, 
It says, and you know, from the first day I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. How refreshing for a man to say to a group of people he ministered to, look, you know what kind of example I was to you. You know how I lived, always in your presence. To the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. A man that can, or a woman that can point to his ministry or her ministry and say, I have no regrets. Remember Paul as he stood before the Sanhedrin, Acts 23, verse 1. Brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Would to God we could all say that, especially those in ministry. But this is why pastors are likened to shepherds and God's people to sheep. You ever wonder why we're not pastors are not likened to ranchers and sheep to cattle? It's because cattle are driven from behind. Sheep are led from in front. And we are shepherds in the sense that we are to be out front by our example leading the flock of God. Any pastor that leads from behind, I question him. Don't do as I do, do as I say. You know, you know, pushing the sheep to go places like the Pharisees. You lay heavy burdens on people, but you are not willing to lift any of them with your little finger. You, don't want, you won't do any of this stuff. Not even the smallest thing will you do, but you'll lay heavy burdens on everybody else to keep the law and everything else. That's a corrupt leader. That's a hypocrite leader, okay? Look, well, let me just say this, okay? We'll move on. Um, the term entrusted to you. What does Peter say? Not being lords over the flock, uh, over those entrusted to you, but examples to the flock, right? The term entrusted to you is a sobering thought that all spiritual shepherds need to consider and constantly remind themselves of, and that is that these are not our sheep. They are God's sheep. You are not my sheep. I love you dearly but you belong to Jesus. And I best never get between you and him. And I better never mistreat you. Because Paul said to those very Ephesian elders, again, in Acts 20, 28, he said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, listen, which he purchased with his own blood. You think they're precious to him? Is she? You better believe it. You better believe it. And pastors need to understand that we have been made under shepherds over God's flock. <laughs> Again, those, that, those who Jesus purchased with his own blood. And someday we're going to have to appear before him and give an account as to how well we took care of his sheep. Give an account to the chief shepherd. We're under shepherds as pastors. But I'm going to stand before the chief shepherd one day and give an account as to how well I cared for, watched over, loved, and fed his sheep. 1 Peter 5.4, If you're faithful, Peter was saying, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. One pastor said with regard to this, it is important for shepherds, pastors, to realize that they lead Jesus' sheep. He is the shepherd. He is the overseer. In this sense, the Christian shepherd does not work for the sheep. He works for the chief shepherd, end quote. And that is so true. If I seek to please men, Paul said, I won't, will no longer be a servant of Christ. Okay? The best way I can serve you guys is by serving Jesus. Because he would never do anything to hurt you. He is the, the chief shepherd who loves the sheep more than anyone could love them. Any shepherd. Because he purchased you with his own blood. If I love him and I obey him, everything I, I'm going to do to you or for you is going to bless you. Or I may have to confront. I may have to challenge. Maybe even rebuke at times. But this is all designed to bring you into a closer walk with him. Another pastor said, If a pastor ministers to please himself or to please people, he will have a disappointing and difficult ministry. It must be hard to keep all these people happy, a visitor said to me after church service. pastor said, I don't even try to keep people happy. I replied with a smile. I try to please the Lord, 
and let him take care of the rest, end quote. I agree. Well, if pastors again are faithful, as Peter said, he said, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. It reminds me of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They exercise a lot of self-control as they train and so on. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now, Paul likes sports. He used a lot of sports metaphors, okay? Because yeah, he, he was a man's man. He, he loved sports. He was in writing to the Corinthians. And in Corinth, they had what was called the Isthmian Games. It rivaled the Olympic Games that was held in Athens. This was held in Corinth. Very much like the Olympic Games, okay? And uh, so Paul was, you know, because so they all knew about this. It was a big deal, okay? And they all had watched these games where athletes had trained for the entire year. I mean, trained and beat their bodies in, into submission. And as Paul said, they were temperate in all things. You know, a lot of self-control goes into an athlete training. I, I'm speaking theoretically. I don't know from personal experience. But, but the idea is that a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of, you know, a lot of sacrifice, right? And, and so they compete finally, and they win. And they stand before the, uh, the judge's seat. And what do they receive? A laurel wreath. Laurel branch has been, you know, kind of uh, woven together, and they put a laurel wreath on the head of the winner. Now, of course, the laurel wreath is worth nothing. It's the glory of having won the competition. Because the laurel wreath, I mean, you're walking around for a day or two with a laurel wreath, and it looks pretty good. But after three or four days, thing begins to turn brown, dry out, and, you know, within a week, it's dead, okay? And, and Paul and Peter are saying, look, Athletes go through a lot of rigorous training, a lot of self-sacrifice, self-control. For what? A moment of glory where they receive a laurel wreath that perishes? And what? We as Christians, we don't sacrifice like that. We don't uh, beat our bodies in the sense that we keep it in subjection uh, as we serve the Lord with all our heart. Because someday we're going to get a crown. But it's not going to fade away. It's not going to wither and die. It's going to be a crown that will be imperishable. It will last forever. How much more so should we go for it, is the idea. Well, but crowns are not only for shepherds, but also for everyone in the body of Christ who is faithful to Jesus, who loves the Lord, who is uh, waiting for his coming, uh, who did what he uh, called them to do. We read in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul says, Finally there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day that he comes. Uh, but uh, And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Crown of righteousness, James chapter 1 talks about the crown of life. Peter here talks about the crown of glory. These are a few of the crowns that the Bible, New Testament talks about that it will be given to those who have faithfully served and lived for and loved the Lord while on the earth. Now, when we get to heaven, we're going to have all these crowns uh, you know, on our heads. What do we do with them? Well, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, we see the 24 elders standing before the throne, Jesus Christ's throne, and they take their crowns off and they cast them at the feet of Jesus. The 24 elders, many commentators believe, are a uh, reference to the church. So as Christians, what do we do with our crowns? It seems that in an act of worship, we throw them at Jesus' feet. Do we pick them up again and wear them? I don't know, possibly. But we give them to him. You know, Lord, you're the reason I have a crown. You, you saved me. You sent your spirit to indwell me. You, you gave me everything I needed to serve you. You called me in the ministry. You worked through me in ministry. And then when I succeeded in ministry, you blessed me as if it was all me. No, it was all you. And, and so we just, in an act of worship, we throw them at his feet. Now, back at 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, Peter said, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We've talked about the, this word submit many times. It's the Greek word hupatasso. It comes from two different Greek words, hupa, which means under, and tasso, which means to line up or to arrange. And therefore, hupatasso means to line up under often used in a military sense, but Paul uses it in marriage in Ephesians 5. 
that wives are to voluntarily line up under the authority of their husbands, okay? But in a military sense, it meant to rank beneath or under another. To rank beneath or under another. And we learn not just from what Peter said here, but from many other places in the New Testament. Uh, as Christians, we are to rank ourselves under one another, not over each other. Now, you remember how that the disciples had a running argument their whole ministry with Jesus. Who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? And they were having this argument when Jesus basically turned to them in Matthew chapter 20, uh, 20 uh, verses 25 to 28, and basically chided them for wanting to be lords over each other. And he said, look, the greatest among you in the kingdom is not going to be the Lord over others, but the servant of all. So start right now learning this principle. Don't line up over each other, line up under. The greatest among you are going to be the the ones that will be the most blessed in the kingdom. The most rewarded are those who gave their lives to helping others now, not in lording. The Gentiles, they, they measure greatness in how many people uh, they're over, they lord over. This is not going to be with you. As my people, you're going to line up under others, be servants. The term clothed with humility is interesting. It translates a rare Greek word that referred to, listen, a slave putting on an apron before serving. Clothe yourself with humility. A word that meant to, it was referred to a slave putting on an apron before serving, even as Jesus did before washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. One author says some marks of humility are such, and he gives a few examples. The willingness to perform the lowest and littlest services for Jesus' sake. Jesus washed feet. That was the lowest task any servant could do back then. And he washed feet to be an example to us. The author says, Consciousness of our own inability to do anything apart from God. The willingness to be ignored of men. It's not important that I'm recognized. That everybody knows my name. I like to quietly serve. Slip in, slip out. Nobody knows it was me. Not so much self-hating. Humility isn't self-hating, although some people think it is. Not so much self-hating or deprecation as self-forgetfulness and being truly others-centered instead of self-centered. Well, again, in verse 5, we read, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For, listen, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, we, we certainly know God hates pride. I mean, in both Old and New Testaments. In fact, uh, the one that comes to my mind immediately is Proverbs 6, right? Uh, verses 16 and 17, where the writer says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. And which one leads the list? Proud look, prideful heart. Later on in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate, God said. So God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we can look at dozens of verses on these two, but look, on this, with regard to this one, Proverbs 22, verse 4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Look, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And me, it's getting what we don't deserve. The word literally means a gift, a gift. Everything we receive from God is a gift. We earn none of it. We deserve none of it. Okay? It's all a gift of God's grace. So what Scripture is saying is that if we will humble ourselves in the sight of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do I humble myself in the sight of God? Humility, which is vertical, in other words, humility toward God, is the attitude that says, I can do nothing apart from you. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. No thing. Now, that's the humility that God responds to. That is the utter brokenness and self-abandonment that says, God, whatever it is, I can't do it. I, 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 can't, I can't love my enemies. I, I, can't, 
I can't forgive those who hurt me. I mean, whatever it is, I can't do it, Lord. I need you to give me a gift of grace to be able to do it. And that's what God, he says, my ears are attentive. They're always open to those of a contrite heart who humble themselves before me and ask, not demand, ask for me to give them what they need to be all that I want them to be. We humble ourselves in the sight of God and we cry out to him for his strength, his help, his victory, freedom, guidance, whatever we need. He will supply it to us, listen, as a gift of his grace. You remember Hebrews 4.16? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God wants you to run to the throne of grace. Isn't it wonderful? You, you and I have access to God's throne anytime we want. The Jews couldn't approach God's throne, which was Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat was, his throne on the earth. Only the high priest could go in there and then only once a year on Yom Kippur. We have access to God's throne anytime we want, and he loves it when his kids come and say, Father, I need your grace. I can't do it. Fill in the blank. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Guys, if we obey the beginning part of verse 6, that is, we humble ourselves constantly under the mighty hand of God, then God will do his part and exalt us in due time. The word exalt means to raise or lift up. To raise or lift up. Now, some believe that this is a reference to the rapture, that in due time God will lift us up off the earth and all the trials and tribulations that go along with this life will be taken up away from all of it into the sky where we will meet our Lord Jesus Christ face to face and receive our glorified bodies. And that might be true. We know it's going to happen eventually. I'm not sure that's what Peter's talking about right here. Why do I say that? Because the term due time is literally in the Greek in time in time, and is not used in the New Testament in an eschatological way. Eschatology is a study of last things, is literally what it means, but it's a study of end times events before Jesus' return. And uh, this, this term, due time, uh, in Greek, is never used uh, in any place of the New Testament where eschatology is in view there. Therefore, what Peter is probably saying is that believers need to keep submitting to God regardless of the trials and persecutions they face. And at one point in time, God will lift us out of the adversity and give us peace. Now, I believe, guys, that's the correct interpretation because if you follow the flow of what Peter goes on to say, it seems that this is what he had in mind. Because he, he talks about, look, hang in there basically, and in time, in time, what time? Well, whatever God determines. He'll raise you up out of the adversity or the tribulation, whatever, okay? I think that's what was on Peter's mind because he goes on to say, if you look at the flow, come to verse 10, it's like he's continuing that thought. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you had suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. When? In his time. So hang in there. Okay, don't bail on the persecution or the adversity because Peter said to start off his epistle that God uses it to do all kinds of positive things in our life, not the least of which to purify our faith, make it like gold, and so on. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The word translated care is a Greek word that means anxiety, literally the state of being pulled apart. Wow. I think a lot of Americans can identify with that. They feel like they're being pulled apart in every direction. Responsibilities pulling at them. Work, home, kids. I mean, so many things. Pulling at people. Tearing them apart. Causing them to be loaded with anxiety. Cares. And what did Paul say? Peter. Uh, what did Peter say? Cast them on Jesus. Notice that Peter didn't say, I love this, Lay all your care, your anxieties, you know, your worries, your fears upon him. Lay them. 
No, that's not what he... He wanted to communicate something much stronger. Uh, the idea was he wanted us to throw our cares uh, away from us onto Jesus. Get rid of them. They're toxic. Um, get rid of them. Throw them onto Jesus. What are you carrying them for? You can't, they're going to crush you. Cast them off into Jesus right away. And the Greek is interesting. It, it means once and for all time, past, present, and future. So a lot of people are wrapped up with cares that happened in the past. Can't go back and fix them, but they still worry about them. And it still bothers them. Present cares, that's obvious. What about future cares? Oh, what am I going to do when I retire? No money save for retirement. You know? Oh, how am I going to pay for the kids' college? You know, that, that kind of thing. You know what? Remember when the women were uh, all fretting because they came back to the, were on their way to the tomb early that resurrection morning to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial? If you read the Gospels, they were talking among themselves. Who's going to roll the stone away? What are we going to do? How are we going to roll the stone away? You know, all worried. When they got there, what did they see? The stone had already been what? Rolled out of the way. I love that. So many times when we worry about things that have not even, we're not even near yet. Oh, all this world. When we finally get there, whatever it is, God's already gone before us. He's already opened the way. I just trust him. That's the idea. Just trust him, okay? Just throw it unto Jesus. Don't worry about it. He's the one that's leading my life. He's the one that promised to provide for me. Uh, and as one pastor said, when you're talking about throwing your cares on Jesus, he said it often requires two hands. <laughs> two hands, what does that mean? Um, to cast our cares upon him. Well, it requires the hand of prayer and the hand of faith. So, you know, you have not because you ask not, James tells us. Um, you got to cast those cares through prayer unto Jesus but also believe that he is going to take care of it by faith. Another admonished, another pastor, we must not hand them to him, our cares, piecemeal. <laughs> Keeping those cares that we think we can handle ourselves. Oh, we're famous for this. If we keep the little cares, quote unquote, for ourselves, I can handle it. Lord, you don't need to worry about this. I'll get this. I got this one. He says, if you keep these little cares for ourselves, they will soon become big problems. Each time a new burden arises, we must by faith remind the Lord and ourselves that we have already turned it over to him. End quote. Verse 8, as Peter begins now to wrap it up, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is very much uh, like um, Peter's earlier admonition in chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The word watchful there in chapter 4, verse 7, is the same Greek word translated sober in chapter 5, verse 8. And uh, this is a word in the Greek that carries with it the idea of self-control. Yes, as we think of sober, we think of uh, self-control with regard to consuming alcohol. That You don't consume uh, alcohol to the point where you're intoxicated. You exercise self-control. You remain sober is the idea. But in this context, and the word can be used kind of metaphorically as Peter is using it, in this context, he uses the word and it means the discipline of mind and body that avoids the intoxicating allurements of the world. We talked about this. The God of this world wants to get us drunk on the cares of this life because we don't think right then you know you're intoxicated at least we remember when we used to get intoxicated we don't think right we didn't think right our our resistance was lower to things that we wouldn't have done sober uh, bad judgments were typical uh, and so on and satan wants us to be intoxicated with the things of this life the cares of this world uh, so he can get us thinking in a, in a way that is not going to be conducive to our walk with christ the word vigilant in verse 8 is a Greek word that means to be on the alert, to stay awake, and that's in order. What do I know that? Because in the Greek it's imperative. It's a command. Okay. So Peter's, you know, final exhortations, right? And he's kind of laying it on the line, right? Be vigilant. Stay awake. And that's in order. Okay. General Peter. The Lord warned his disciples, remember? Keep watching and praying. 
that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? It's interesting, once again, the New Testament tells us to be watching, not waiting for the Lord's return. I can be waiting for somebody to come to my house, get busy with something, and their coming takes me by surprise. If I'm sitting by the window watching for their coming, I won't be taken, I won't be caught off guard. We are to watch for the Lord's return, and the only way you can watch for his return is if you know the signs he has given you to look for that tell us his coming is very near. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Verse 9, resist him, the devil, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brethren in the world. Here's the thing. I love, I'm so thankful Peter said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes when we're going through severe trials or adversities or whatever it might be, it's easy for us to turn inward and become um, where we are feeling sorry for ourselves. Like we're the only one. You know, why doesn't God love me? Everybody else is being blessed. Why am I the only one? You know, it's, but see, Peter, no, you're not the only one. If you're being persecuted by the devil, know that this is common. It's a universal thing throughout the body of Christ spread around the world. We are going to be, this is part and parcel to what it means to be a Christian, that we have an enemy who wants to do his best to take us out of the race, to neutralize our witness and so on, to get us to drop out. He's lost us. We're saved, I believe, forever once you're really saved. But if he can neutralize you, your effectiveness, your walk, if he can get you sidelined where you're not a danger to him that you know, you're witnessing and helping others to get saved, he doesn't care. Just get you on the sideline and, and so on. But I never suffer alone. There's always others who are suffering just as much, if not much more, than I'm suffering. Keep that in mind. Notice that Peter didn't say resist the devil with faith, right? He didn't say resist the devil with faith. In other words, with the power of faith as if faith was a force. I don't have time to go into this. We've talked about it. There are those in the Christian church who teach that faith is a force. Uh, may the force be with you, I guess, is our motto. <laughs> but they believe faith is a force. And if you understand the laws of faith and what governs this power called faith, if you learn it for $49.95, give me 40, 50 bucks, and I'll send you my little five-part series on unlocking, knowing the keys that unlock the power of faith, okay? That's not what he's talking about, folks. That's not what he's saying, okay? Uh, notice what he says. He says, resist the devil in the faith, in the faith. It's not a verb. It's a noun, the faith. Look, the best way to defeat the devil is to be strong in the Lord, listen, by being firmly planted in the Christian faith, and the word, in prayer, fellowship, and so on. Jesus won the victory over the devil at the cross. And as Christians, we are in Christ. That's how we can have victory. That's how we can be fruitful, because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is living his life through us if we'll get out of the way and stop trying to grunt and groan and strain to produce fruit, just abide in Christ, it will happen naturally. And because Jesus won the victory over Satan and his demons, and because I'm in him, I'm victorious if I will let Jesus live his life through me by faith. Now, I have a responsibility. Stay in the word, stay in fellowship, uh, you know, that kind of prayer. But this is all what it means to be in the faith, being in Christ, basically. When he says resist, the word resist comes from two ancient Greek words that mean to stand and against. Two ancient Greek words, stand and against. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, This means that we take our stand on the word of God and refuse to be moved. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13 instructs us to stand, withstand, and again to stand. Unless we stand, we cannot withstand. Our weapons are the word of God and prayer. And our protection is the complete armor God has provided. We resist 
him, the devil, in the faith that is our faith in God. Just as David took his stand against Goliath and trusted in the name of Jehovah, so we take our stand against Satan in the victorious name of Jesus Christ, end quote. The victory is in Christ. He's already won it. Resist the devil in the faith. You have victory. You're not working towards it. You already have it. You just got to apply it. You got to, you know, cling to the promises. And, and claim the victory God has given you over the devil in Christ. Resist the devil, James said, and he'll what? Flee. Flee. Resist, not rebuke the devil. That's a different teaching. Resist the devil by just staying close to the Lord. Well, let's finish. Verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you had suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So Sylvanus, uh, Peter looks like he dictated this letter. and Sylvanus actually wrote it down. But notice, and what has Peter given to us? Did Peter know he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Maybe. He was. He knows it's the truth because it's everything the faith is all about. The gospel, what it means to be in Christ, and so on. And so he says, this, what I've just told you, this is the true grace of God. In other words, it's the word of God. It's the truth of God that I've given you in which you stand. He said in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son, probably John Mark, uh, who accompanied Paul uh, in many of his missionary journeys, uh, very close to Peter. In fact, scholars believe that uh, they sometimes call the gospel of Mark the gospel according to Peter, tongue-in-cheek, because they believe that Mark interviewed Peter extensively, and that's where the details of Mark's gospel came from. So they're very close. Okay, very close. Talks about this gal who was in Babylon, elect. She was a Christian. Uh, she greets you. So does Mark. He ends by saying, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, just a reference to this statement about this reference to Babylon. Commentators say this might be uh, the literal city of Babylon, which still existed, by the way, in Peter's day or maybe a symbolic way of referring to either Rome or Jerusalem. Uh, they were two cities. Babylon was, was renowned as a place of wickedness. And so sometimes they would use that uh, kind of as in a spiritual way to talk about another wicked city like, like um, Rome or Jerusalem. Uh, two cities that in Peter's day were famous for their wickedness and spiritual rebellion uh, and so on. But, all right, well, that is Peter's first epistle. We're not sure Peter knew he was going to write a second epistle. Probably didn't, but he does. And uh, boy, does he lay it on the line in his second epistle, okay? And uh, so it would be uh, uh, not only a lot of fun, but very instructive to get into his next epistle. God willing, we'll do that uh, next time. So, Father, we thank you for our time in your word, not just tonight, but throughout our time in First Peter. A lot of practical exhortations, Lord. Thank you. We need those. And Lord, give us grace, as Peter said, to keep our eyes above, remembering that we have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that will never fade away, reserved in heaven by you who, are, who keep us in the power, your power by faith. So Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would continue to bless our studies in your word. Starting now next week with Second Peter, Lord, we ask that you would pour your spirit out upon this a new study, and bless it mightily for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.